You are listening to an Unlocked New Models episode. Less than half of our interviews, discussions, audio dramas, or monologues are ever made public. To access all of our content, or to join the discussions in our Discord server, visit patreon.com slash newmodels, or newmodels.substack.com. Welcome to New Models. The following is a conversation between New Models and artist Corey Archangel that was streamed live on Tuesday, February 7th as part of Kunstverein Hamburg's online programming. Corey's show, Flying Foxes, has been at the Kunstverein since November, and curator Nicholas Tammons invited us to speak to him before his show closes this Sunday. A video of the stream will likely be available through the Kunstverein Hamburg soon, but we not only edited the conversation for you to listen to here, we remixed it with our proprietary New Models Audio Metaverse technology. What was just a Zoom conversation is now an immersive, experiential podcast in front of a simulated studio audience. We hope you enjoy this journey into the Audio Metaverse with myself, Lil Internet, my co-hosts Carly Busta and Daniel Keller, artist Corey Archangel, with an introduction from Kunstverein Hamburg curator Nicholas Tammons. Let's get into it. Welcome to the New Models Audio Metaverse. Welcome everyone for joining us this evening. This is being hosted by the Kunstverein in Hamburg. I'm Nicholas Tammons, the assistant curator here and the curator of the exhibition with Corey Archangel, Flying Foxes, which is coming to a close this Sunday. And I'm just going to give some short introductions before handing it over. So first of all, just an introduction. Corey was born in Buffalo in 1978. He's a central figure in a generation of artists responsive to recent technological developments in an increasingly information-saturated global culture. Archangel's post-conceptual practice has approached cultural forms such as Photoshop gradients, video game modifications, and YouTube tutorials to produce works of art that deal with the inextricable link between digital technology and today's popular culture. Part of Archangel's interest in these current trends is their rapid obsolescence, structurally built into their material, their programming, codes, and their hardware. As such, Archangel's work deals with the confluence of technologies across time, how we experience them aesthetically and by their nature, how they determine such an experience. And of course, today, Corey joins us alongside Carolyn Buster, Little Internet, and Daniel Keller from New Models, a media channel and community addressing the emergent effects of technology on culture. Since 2018, New Models has built an international member network and Discord server, who I think are listening at the moment, stage many IRL and digital physical events, publish swarm-generated content with high standby, Kaleidoscope and Novomb, released an album's worth of radio plays by Little Internet, created an internet perfume with Society of Scent, and facilitated the creation of an interactive digital glossary and in web decks, as well as a physical book and in codex, both collectively authored by the NM community. So New Models publishes a weekly podcast hosted by our three guests tonight, often with the help of and in dialogue with a range of experts. If you don't already, you can follow them on newmodels.io, patreon.com, newmodels, and their substack as well. And we should also say a very quick thank you to our sponsors, the Behörde for Kultur and Media in Hamburg, uh, the OCA Norway, and the Norwegian Embassy in Berlin. 
So with that, I hand it over to New Models and Corey to kick it off. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Hey, Corey. Thanks. Hey, thanks for uh, having me. Long time listener. So I guess what we're going to do is we're going to do this kind of live podcast for the next hour where Mm -hmm. we're going to maybe get a little prehistory. We'll talk a little bit about the show. And then I think we'll free associate also in some various directions. We've long wanted to free associate with you. Yeah. Okay. Sounds sounds perfect. Yeah. I've also wanted to uh, free associate for a long time, actually. Awesome. So I'm glad we made this happen. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So I guess like as a way of beginning in our ever more decentralized media environment, I imagine there's some people who are tuning in who aren't totally familiar with the full scope of your practice and how you got into making the things that you make. So maybe to start, could we ask you to speak a little bit about the media era in which you first started thinking about digital culture, network culture, humans and machines, this kind of thing. What was that media landscape like? I mean, we're born the same year, so I imagine this is a 90s intensive question, but who knows, maybe earlier or later. Maybe also, how did you connect then? Like physically, what were the interfaces and operating Mm -hmm. systems and information devices that you were using? Like animate that world for us a little bit. Yeah. So 78 was the year that we were born. Yes. So do you you consider yourself an Xennial or Gen X or what do you, what's your tagline? I mean, unlike you, you sort of found your place in the aughts. And I think I was still figuring things out. So I ended up being an honorary elder Malen, technically. Nice. Um, but I'd imagine, I'm curious what how you'd frame yourself. Carly, I think you have a Gen X mind with a millennial smile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I, I identify as an Xenia. I think X has to be in there for me because... You know, like I was going to other music and buying like pavement records or whatever, you know, like, (laughs) like, so like I would love as a kind of contrarian position to be like, I'm Gen X. I mean, I would love to be able to pull it off, but I think I can't quite, it's like a little bit too eye rolly, you know, but I would love that's, I would love to claim that I was Generation X, like full on in full force. But, um, yeah, I think it's like for me, the first time I really started to think about like network, the idea of like being able to broadcast was through public access. So it was, I was in Buffalo and you know, I'm an MTV kid, right? That you have to start there. Like when I was growing up, our, like we had a remote control on our TV and MTV was channel 27 and on our remote control, the two and the seven were worn off. You know, so it was just like TV was like my thing. And then, of course, like in Buffalo, we had a a public access channel on channel 13 and on channel 13, there was like a experimental video art show called Axel Grease. And it was run by Squeaky Wheel, which was the local experimental video kind of nonprofit. And that show was my first kind of like like I would see this weird stuff on this show, you know, as a teenager. And I just became really kind of entranced by the idea that, oh, like maybe I could have a video that shows on this show and then it could come through the TV back into my house, you know? And if you, for people who are younger, it's hard to even imagine how powerful the TV was. It was like a fire hose 
<laughs> that got blasted into your house and you had no control over it at all, right? And the idea like that I could get something to come through that fire hose was my first kind of thing. And eventually, you know, I did go to Squeaky Wheel. I did drop off a tape, like I submitted a tape or something, you know, but it was not until college that I had enough nerve to submit a tape. And uh, I don't know if they ever played it actually. <laughs> <laughs> but that would have been the, yeah, it would have been videos I was making like in college. So they would have been like weird experimental shorts, like slow mo, like a lot of found TV footage. Like I would record the prices right and then edit it only to the losers, you know, this kind of stuff, you know, like, yeah. So that was really my first kind of idea of networked culture. And it's a bit of a trick answer because it would, it's not what you would think of network culture, but I think like later on when I found net art in the night, like later nineties, I, that's how I related to it. I was like, oh, you could have your own chant, like your webpage could be your own channel. You know, that's how I thought of it. I mean, yeah. I think it's actually interesting. They, you know, public access television and ARPANET, they're both from, I think, 1969, 1970 around then. So they're both actually have very similar origins. And so I don't think it's such a huge leap to connect the two. Definitely the state sponsored and state implemented prototype of something that becomes much more ubiquitous later on. Yeah. And it was like so much power, which like, it's still, I don't know if I'm explaining it, but the idea that you could have something come through your TV then was just mind blowing. Cause it was on the same level as David Letterman or I don't know, Johnny Carson, or like it, these things were like mountains, you know, now, of course it's different. Now it's like TV doesn't even mean any, hardly anything anymore, you know? But at the time it almost felt like a hack, like you figured out a hack to like somehow enter this TV stream that was like impenetrable. Yeah. Public access. Yeah. No. And I still remember, like, I still remember going, handing over my tape. And it's so funny because years later I was talking to somebody and they're like, oh yeah, like it was probably one of the yes men that was working at, at squeaky wheel then. Like I probably actually handed my tape to one of the yes men who was just like the administrator of squeaky wheel then. I mean, I think that probably the, the feeling of having yourself show up on a screen is obviously still very evocative to people, even yeah, if it's right. of course. a much yeah. more common experience or it's constant, or it's more like a mirror now, but obviously it's still, you know, that thing is magical, basically just like, oh my God, that's me on the TV. <laughs> yeah, I get totally. it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's the same for my seven-year-old with the phone, like just to even record and to play back. Yeah. So I think you're right. Yeah. That's a good point. There is a kind of universal magicality of just showing, seeing ourselves on the screen. Yeah. That is a really mm. good point. It's also interesting that, I mean, back then, right, public access channels were mandated by the state really to carve out some space on this in this media that the public could own and put their own content on, you know, in a sea of kind of expanding channels and, and cable, right? And, you know, with social media, we don't have that. I mean, it'd be the equivalent of like the government telling Twitter, yeah, okay, cool, but you have to give us a Twitter profile or an Instagram profile that automatically has 1 billion followers yeah, so that yeah, everyone yeah, yeah. like, you know, and then we'll <laughs> people can send us things to post and we'll post it and everyone can see it. I mean, that would yeah, be the equivalent basically, but universal all... basic 15 minutes of fame, I think is what it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Didn't didn't Sweden do that, right? Wasn't Sweden letting like any citizen run their Twitter account for a while? What country was, what country was that? That's a, an incredibly bad idea, but I think it's, it's... <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really make much sense anymore, right? That the government would have to put energy into broadcasting people because of course it ended up being a billion trillion dollar industry, right? Right. I mean, I still think they should have that though. Yeah. I, I I don't think it's fair that the there isn't this space carved out for the public good in, in social media. Well, I mean, it's, it's public, we talk public about space the, the public, public access that, explore feed. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Exa exactly. That's what it would be. It would be like a like another <laughs> algorithm that would actually show you things that weren't damaging to your soul. <laughs> right. <laughs> and just, within 100 kilometers or something. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. This is free association already. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, what I thought, though, what we could do though is maybe just set up the terms of your practice a little bit as well mm. and what i'm getting from this beginning is that cybernetic processes are really important to you this idea that like media serves this purpose you're able to externalize an idea and then watch it come back to you and something is shifted in that process. But I wonder, I mean, you know, in the aughts when your career as an artist was becoming established, there was a clear centralized art world that was paying attention. You know, people super nerded out about your work. I mean, if you didn't know one piece, someone would be like, oh, you're not that hardcore of a core <laughs> man, you know. Yeah. But, you know, now that things God are so centralized. <laughs> um, Little did I well, know. It was pretty great. But now that things are so decentralized and art has a slightly different meaning or slightly different parameters than it did 15, 20 years ago, 10 even, I wonder how do you speak about your practice to people that aren't like art core people, people who maybe have like aesthetic practices or are culturally turned on or just curious. I mean, I can imagine your practice touching a lot of different people, like inspiring a lot of different people. So how do you speak about it when you're talking about it somebody without that background so not like is this the like somebody on an airplane who has no connection exactly to... actually uh, exactly yeah. what came to mind yeah <laughs> i mean i used to avoid the subject entirely up until even a couple of years ago i would just say i was a computer programmer like it was okay. just too it was too hard to explain but you know i think in the last since i really moved to norway probably like 2010 on it got easier and easier and easier. And now, now I'll say that, what do you do? I usually will say everything except painting because I've never really made a painting. And then I'll say, yeah. And it's usually through the computer, everything kind of goes through the computer. So it's a pretty simple mm -hmm. answer now. And now I get like the thing that I get, which is really wild. Oh, so do you make NFTs? So that is like, <laughs> so it went like really quickly from people not understanding anything that I said a couple of years ago, like, wait, what on the computer, huh? To like, oh yeah, I know that. Is that that NFT thing? So it's really changed really radically, even in the last few years. You know, I like how product, they found product market fit finally. Didn't yeah, they? exactly. Really, the first time. Yeah. Yeah, and that's. Um, I mean, that's like you have to like. Yeah, I mean, understand. Even twenty years ago, just the idea of making art, digital art, was just completely foreign to even people in the arts. You know, yeah. and even maybe up until yeah. I would say, like up until two thousand and ten, that was in the contemporary art world. That was the majority of the case where it wasn't even worth it to talk to a talk about it with a contemporary art person who's like, yeah, I don't want to get into it really. But, right. you know, because digital art was just, I mean, contemporary art is slow. The kind of like median of it is very slow and um, it's changed so much in 20 years. I mean, like my original goal when I started was just to have a show in a quote unquote, like 
normal gallery and normal meaning like a gallery that also showed painting and sculpture. That was like my only career goal. Was I like, think that's actually something really interesting there. Like for a digital artist to be into a museum in a museum or in a gallery system that felt like transgressive or almost like you were hacking your way yeah, in. It felt and, and yeah. that does not feel the way any that way anymore. Probably it feels like the trad <laughs> option, but no, I think that was very much like it made sense as a goal because it was progressive inherently to get, get your kind of stuff in there. Yeah. Yeah. It felt impossible. It was like, right, it, it felt right. entirely like an impossibility. Like that's how it was presented to me in 2000, 2001, 2002. Yeah. Now it's the opposite. Now it's like, God, I don't, now I have the exact opposite problem where I, I don't know what to do going the other way. Like, let's stop this train. Like, how do I turn it around? You know, like, <laughs> I mean, since you mentioned them, I'm just going to ask, I assume that you've had offers or opportunities to make NFTs or people approaching you, NFT platforms, et cetera. I'm just wondering why you have chosen not to do that so far. Or, you know, I mean, you're mentioning that you want to get away from kind of art world infrastructure distribution. So just wondering if there's anything on the horizon there. Yeah. I mean, definitely want to like jump in at some point, you know, so it isn't a, like I'm against it, but uh, it's just like, it's a pretty boring answer. Like I had a, you know, Corona with a kid. It was just like, I didn't have time to deal with learning like yeah. the blockchain. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I was just trying to like get by week by week, you know? And so I haven't really, I think like with all that stuff, it's a technology, but it's also an economic system and it's also a culture like a whole. So it, it's really a lot to handle it's a lot to learn, I think, you know, so I definitely want to mess with it. Cause it seems it, it's a mainstream thing now, you know, but I just haven't had time to like wrap my head around it. Yeah. And usually I'm pretty late to things. It's like, that's my, that's my comfortable space is being a few years late, <laughs> you know, like I'm happy for the like forest to be burned down. And then I come in and be like, okay, well, what, what's, I think worth? that's a very valid what's strategy for yeah, like, things. I mean, I, I was going to ask also just like when, when a technology becomes so ubiquitous and trendy, do you tend to see that as like an opportunity or do you like, is that something that you, you know, you stay away from kind of automatically? I think I usually become interested in a technology when it becomes the mainstream, because I like my work to have the possibility to, to be accessible to just anybody off the street. Right. Like, so for example, like I had a piece called Permanent Vacation that I made in 07. And that was two yes. computers emailing. Well, it's it stuck in an out-of-office email reply loop, right? So it's a sculpture. And, you know, every minute they, one of them goes ping. And that, like, people didn't even really know what email was. Like, email became mainstream <laughs> in, like, 05, right? So I, I had that idea, but I wasn't able to make that sculpture because it would have been pointless. But like once, you know, my mother had an email address and, and the, then I was like, okay, green light. And then I made that sculpture. So that's a mm -hmm. good example of, I'll usually we'll wait, but then, yeah, when things are too hot, I can't process them, you know, and it's not that I'm against it, but I just, I get overwhelmed really easily with things. And, and so I try to stay away from hot topics until they cool down. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like my, my best example of that is like, I didn't even listen to Radiohead until Corona. Like it took me 20 years <laughs> to finally sit down and listen to it's Radiohead. It's safe now. Yeah. Cause yeah. I was like, all right, like I've got mental space. It's kind of, they're not so hot I mean, anymore. And I, you know, so that's like kind of how I operate, you know, so maybe it might take me 20 years to do NFT, but I just, I have to right. be in that. I have to feel comfortable with 
the parameters in that it isn't too hot or whatever. I mean, maybe this is the reason that like something that I'm not the first to know it's been noted many times, but that your work has this double life as an archive of these different media moments and of people's relationship to technology as it changes. And maybe one of the reasons why it does that so successfully is because you are putting these pieces of technology out there once they've already reached mass adoption. So people already have an emotional relationship to them. In fact, even are like, know that their obsolescence is imminent or something. So there's like something that's tender towards it. Like, do you think that's why your work operates with this level of nostalgia? Or what do you think it is that gives it that extra emotional quality? Oh, geez. Yeah. I mean, my work is also a little bit of a mystery to me. I have to say like, (laughs) And I don't mean to be coy, but like, I'm not fully in charge of it really. Right. And I, I could feel it and I could understand it as feelings when I put it out in the world, but I, it's a good exercise for me to try to voice. Why do I think it has some kind of pull for people? I mean, that piece for me and a lot of them are this, this kind of sadness or something, this kind of infinity, right. That piece is about like infinity right? This idea that these two computers and maybe that's where the energy comes from this. When people see that piece, they're kind of confronted with, oh, I sound like Jeff Koons or something like confronted with (laughs) their own, with their own mortality, that they're going to die at some point or something. You know what I mean? Like I'm thinking about mortality. I'm thinking of, you know, this is my best Jeff Koons, but that would be my best effort to understand that piece. Like that technology of emailing or, pro, you know, the email protocol or whatever the hell, I don't even know what the email protocol is. Email a protocol? Yeah. Dan, yeah. Okay, great. Is it Thank SMTP? Is yeah, it- SMTP and POP. Right, of course. <laughs> Actually, that piece is kind of cool because it's a hack. It's a, it's a true hack because then um, galleries didn't always have internet. So I couldn't have the computers talking to the cloud or into the internet. So actually what that piece is, it's one of the computers is running an SMTP and pop server and like, I think name server. And Mm -hmm. so actually, actually the trick of that piece is that both emails are being stored on one computer and each of the, (laughs) each of the outlooks, each of the outlooks are going to that one computer and pulling them separately does that make sense? Because so yes. the email server can only be on one computer. So it's actually not, it's not a f- perfect technically 50 parity. It's a, it's like everything is actually technically on one computer. So it's a funny little hack. So what was I saying? Yeah. So like that technology, SMTP name server pop. Yeah. It had to have a name server because it was Corey one at CoreyArchangel.com and Corey two at CoreyArchangel.com. That was, those were the emails. So, but yeah, so through that, maybe and being presented with this infinite void and this idea of electricity and the never endingness, maybe that's where this tenderness came from. I don't know. That makes sense. I mean, Mario clouds have that same feeling of infinity and it's sad because the players are gone and it's just the clouds. (laughs) And you think about like, after you're dead somewhere, there's still going to be a super Mario world that exists (laughs) without humans, I guess. Yeah. I always thought like years later, I thought of that one was being more also (laughs) like, 
oh, and this is what we do with our time. Like, this is how we represent <laughs> the right. na nature. Like, <laughs> this is our idea of the natural, you know? Like, <laughs> but yeah, so right. I think for my work, it's often these feelings, you know, and I, I'm tapped into these feelings and the work is driven by that. And then, as you can see, I just tried to decipher one of the feelings, right? Got it. Quick question, but have you ever gotten scooped on a concept? Like you oh, had an idea to do something all the time. <laughs> yeah, all the time. I mean, and I think being scooped is a good, I had to learn early on that being scooped is a good thing. And usually what you want to do when you're scooped is you want to reach out to that person and become friends with them. You know, like, like it, <laughs> means, right, that, right. it means that somebody else in the world is so, is you're, you're sharing some kind of brain space. And so instead of thinking it as a like, oh no, I blah, 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 blah. It's really like, hey, this is a really positive situation. And your community can be created that way by who's scooping you. And, and in the end, it's actually, it turns out there's a small amount of people doing this kind of stuff. You know, but I'm being scooped all the time. And now, now I look at it as I'm older and I have less time, a lot less time. It's like, oh, thank God. Like I can get rid of that idea off my list. <laughs> right, right. You can just remediate it. Be yeah. like, look at this cool thing. And then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Be aware of it's enough. <laughs> Related to like creating your own community, both of us started our art practices in collaborations before trying solo careers and other configurations. I'm just wondering what were kind of the best and worst aspects of collaboration for you and what kinds of collaboration do you still use in your practice? And also like, is there any chance for a, a beige reunion ever in the future? Is Maybe see what beige awful? is. Beige yeah, was yeah. of course- the uh, close. Yeah, the beige programming right. ensemble. Programming yeah. ensemble, duh, right. Yeah, oh, great question. Yeah, so that was like a kind of uh, programming ensemble that I was in like late 90s, early 2000s. Four people were in that, uh, Paul Davis, Joe Boykman, Joe Bond. And we were a kind of like loose multimedia crew kind of thing. And it was like, that was also the era, of course, of paper ad. During that era, that's kind of what a lot of people of my generation did is you would kind of join together. And because like even something like having a URL then was like, really intense. So often people would gather, be like starting a small record label or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like, so that was like how I first became publicly known was as part of that ensemble in the early 2000s. And we did a lot of stuff like, yeah, retro computing, uh, like letterpress, silkscreen stuff. Yeah. I mean, like I still collaborate a lot. So that's something that hasn't fallen off, although the collaborations have been in different ways. So I just got back from New York and I did a performance on Saturday night at Issue Project Room with Stina Janvin. So we did like an hour of music for string ensemble, voice, auto-tune, MIDI guitar. And that was based off of scores that we released last fall on primary information in a book called Identity Pitches. So I'm still doing like a lot of different things. I would say pluses and minuses. Like, of course, every collaboration is different. Pluses are like, like, especially now I'm like, so in, I'm just been almost 25 years. Right. So I'm like, my thing is like my thing. And I'm like, kind of like a bit uptight about it. And I sit in this little room that you see here, like alone and just like, I can get kind of in my own head and it could get kind of into a bad space a lot of times just cause I, so collaborations are a way for me just to like, let go and just like trust somebody else and get out of my own mm. nonsense and just get into some kind of flow and just, like this thing with Stina, like I learned just intonation. I learned, I just like was exposed to this huge 
world that I wouldn't have been. So that's the thing. That's the great thing about collaborations is for me, it's just a way just to let go and just be like a person and not like this kind of art machine. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. negative things, collaborations, miscommunications, you know, different people want different things, you know, it's like classic band kind of energy. So it's definitely, yeah, it can go either way. But I think for me, I've in some way or another, I'm always working on some collaboration at any point because it keeps mm-hmm. things moving. But there may for, be just more like flexible arrangements and you're not like creating bands. I think that's- Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so example, yeah. like I think the beige programming th- ensemble was a little bit closer to a band and that, and also we were also young. So that was just like, right. that was like a different time. But in terms of like, yeah, there's no reason it, uh, something couldn't happen, I would say. <laughs> I would leave that as the exclusive. I mean, I oh, think okay. about that nice. stuff now, like- I mean, we we started work on the 8-bit construction set in the late 90s. It's like almost 25 years. So I, I think back on it all really fondly now, you know, like... Yeah, I feel time. like there must be enough distance that generally whatever yeah, and all, or beefs yeah, have faded yeah, away. Yeah, like and... really fondly. And those are really special projects and, and really important to my life of being an artist, you know, so... Mm. I wanted to ask, you grew up playing guitar. I think you even studied classical guitar. And of course, music. Sorry, this is like a Twitter thought leader type beat, but like in (laughs) antiquity, right? The quadrivium was this uh, type of education where you'd study music, arithmetic, astronomy, and geometry. So it's like everything related to patterns and math, including music was kind of packaged together. But I I wonder if you found any analogies in the process of like guitar playing and the things you do in coding or hacking, et cetera. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Like, well, music is just code. I mean, a score is just a sheet of code. I mean, that's, I'm not even being like poetic. It's like, that's literally what a score is. Play this note here, repeat this many times, go back. So, you know, to study music is really in a way to study a type of code. Uh, I studied Western classical music or and avant-garde, Western avant-garde music. So there wasn't that much difference really between that and coding. Guitar in specific is also like a cool instrument because you could play the same note in many different places. So to play guitar means you always have to be thinking a bit multidimensionally because there's so many different ways to play the same thing. And it's a bit like chess or something where you have to be thinking ahead, so many moves ahead, dot, 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 dot. And so I think that helps me, like, especially with conceptual art, where you have to kind of have these huge thought trees and slowly kind of cross some of those possibilities out to arrive at an answer. So there is a real parody, especially with arranging music for guitar. And that my teacher at the Oberlin Conservatory was an arranger. So they learned that. And then the the third is like the idea of a stage. It's like similar to, yeah, like a TV or a cinema where it's a box. There's narrative time. People are expected to start and watch something from the beginning to the end. And I think I got my, it juiced my interest in these formats, right? The format of the white cube, the format of cinema, the format of a browser, of a cell phone. Like there's all these boxes and that time is experienced different in each box. And you could insert these things into these boxes, which push against them or play along with them, you know? And so, yeah, it was definitely, it was like one led to another in a way. 
This is maybe actually a good pivot to talking about your Hamburger Kunstverein show. We can get into all the different works, but prominently there's two videos that are simul simultaneously playing where it's basically like an Instagram feed scroll bot performance. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I wonder how you describe it. Maybe for listeners who haven't seen the show, you could animate that a little bit. But this idea of performance feels relevant, feels like there's a link here. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. So let's say yeah, if you were next to me on the plane, this is one I would explain. You know, I have a couple okay. go-tos. <laughs> I would say like Mario Claus is a go-to my working on my novel novel is a go-to and this Instagram bot one is a go-to. So I would be like, for example, like I wrote a bot or in this case, my studio wrote a bot. It was Henry Van Dusen actually. And it just goes to a feed. It could be Instagram or Twitter, but in the case of the concern show it was Instagram and whatever feed it's pointed to, it just scrolls and likes every post. So scroll, like, scroll, like, and for the Kunstverein show, we did it for Conoco Phillips and Amazon. And so when you go into the show, there's a huge cinema projection with a bench in front of it, like MoMA style of this ConocoPhillips feed, just scroll like, scroll like. But horizontally, then, importantly. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that's, that's cinematic very, scope. it's very important. It's horizontal, which Nick and I learned at some point during the show. It's, it's actually technically a tracking shot. You know, that's like, shot. right. Because it's like the camera moves on a kind of like track. The I thought of side-scroller games, but I guess it's the same idea, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. The side, a side-scrolling game is also a tracking shot. And I also mm -hmm. thought, of course, of side-scrolling. And of course, I also, I explained people, if you want to know what it was like to see Mario Clouds for the first time 20 years ago, it's what it's like to see these pieces now. Because they're basically the same kind of thing <laughs> in a way. Like, it's true. They're, they're very, very, very similar. Mm -hmm. And now it's fun because these are so close where you can't really tell what they're doing. So like the uncanniness is, it's unclear what, what they are, you know, and as of, hopefully as time goes on, they will reveal themselves positively. I, I don't know. It's not up to me, but so, but basically you go into the show and there's these two huge side scrolling things and they're side scrolling asynchronously and it's kind of entrancing and that I had never shown them like that. And in fact, that was one of the big breakthroughs of this show. Cause I had made those pieces for a couple of years and I couldn't figure out how to show them. I showed them on like a flat screen, like normal way. And then people couldn't even tell they were art. Like, like <laughs> just... and then I showed them as these kind of Jenny Holzer kind of things where I would, I had like four of them going up a wall. And that was like, it was a struggle, but this, I finally found out, oh, this is the way to show them. Like, Nauman style, MoMA, right. full, huge, um, <laughs> you know, just like pound them, be like, no, this is important. Pound it into people's faces. I mean, the crazy thing is because of that form of presentation, like you are seduced to sit on the bench and look <laughs> at it. And you're like, you want, you sit there and you watch this like crazy insipid feed for a half hour or however long the loop is, something <laughs> yeah. like that. I always like to imagine you're supposed to lay down and watch <laughs> True. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That. <laughs> oh, that's such a great idea, actually. Uh, no, when I show when I show them now, I have to really be forced. I'm like, no, they have to be sideways. Yeah, and so that's part of the game and of the trick and of what I'm. I try to find that scenario, right? And it took me many years to find it, really. And it's really funny because it's like doesn't seem like it's that hard. <laughs> and I've been doing I mean, this like my whole adult life, but still, you know, it turns out it it's easy. <laughs> it turns out it's hard. <laughs> 
I mean, I see behind you these Adidas striped um, yeah. panels, which are also another iteration of that project is also on view at the uh, Kunstbrand Hamburg. Can you speak a little bit about that? I mean, also obviously Adidas talking about like emotional yeah. triggers or something that has a really prominent place in the mass cultural imaginary. Maybe you can also describe how that work is represented in the Kunstbrand Hamburg show and what relationship it might have to these uh, performance bots. Yeah, so these these are new-ish. These are laser cut in aluminum. The one behind me is is then powder coated pink. The ones in the Kunstrein show are laser cut raw aluminum, just right off the factory floor. And they are laser cut with the Adidas stripes. And then they're my signature is somewhere. You can't see it. But they're wavy. So it's like yes. not the logo. It's like actually taken from the track pant. Yeah, so I've been collecting track pants for like 10 years. And I just went in New, in New York and I got my stash. So I, I've been collecting all these track pants that have these cool stripes and logos on them. Basically, yeah. So the, what I do for these is I just lay those pants on the floor of my studio. I'll take a cell phone pic. I'll then vectorize the stripes, take the vectors, put it into a kind of CAD-ish program, and then design the laser file for the factory then to laser cut out the stripes. And those are like... For me, that's a lot about moving to Norway and just trying to like, you know, I live in Stavanger, which is an oil town. And so it means there's a lot of metal and aluminum because this is where the oil gets extracted, which means there's just hundreds and thousands of companies that make pipes and gaskets and cogs and I don't know. And so I moving here, I just was like, why don't I just produce things here in some of these companies? And I was also, of course, thinking a lot about aluminum because aluminum is often made in these Scandinavian countries because of the low price of electricity. And so, mm. yeah, so I just had it in my mind, like, oh yeah, aluminum, I just need to start doing things in aluminum. And then I found this great company out in like in Yaren, which is down the coast. Then they were cool for me to start sending them weird, these weird things. And so I, I felt like there was some relationship between like aluminum and Adidas and oil, you know, petroleum manufacturing. Multinationals. Yeah, exactly. And you know, these aluminum, have you ever seen one of these aluminum factories? They just go on for miles. They takes they're, they're so crazy. And so, so that's. They're kind of and they're direct like energy price arbitrage operations like you mentioned mm -hmm. i think that is for sure really interesting more so than other metals because it's kind of infinitely recyclable it's like the only kind of recycling that isn't fake but yeah. but is really energy intensive so it just becomes almost like a battery right yeah yeah totally yeah. so all those things were kind of in play and then yeah the adidas thing i've been just i can go anywhere and see those stripes in fact i had a funny like a few years ago i was trying to decide what colors to make them this was for a show a couple of years ago. And I went out here in Stavanger to run some errands. And that day I saw nine people wearing black Adidas pants. Nine people in Stavanger. <laughs> so it just, you know, they're just so, it's so ubiquitous. I mean, and then, you know, I'm made also... out of oil though, right? True, I guess. Yeah. Synthetic, yeah. right? They're probably, yeah. yes, they're like yeah. synthetic. Yeah, so. Yeah, no, definitely. And oil is, is everything's made out of oil all medicine, roads, you know, like, I mean, it's fun. That's one thing that's fun to live here in Stavanger is I, I could see the oil industry from the other side and also to see actual extraction happen and, and to live in a town where the town is built on this extraction. So everything is affected by it. Like here, when you say, do you work in the industry? 
<laughs> people know what you're talking about. Like in LA, mm -hmm. it's like the movie industry here. It's the oil industry. <laughs> sure. It's cool. After coming from New York where everything was so like in New York, nothing was real. It's a mega city. So everything is built on top, on top, on top of these like meta levels of civilization. But here it's like, oh, some guy's got to get on a helicopter and fly out there today and like come back in two weeks, you know? And so mm -hmm. the, the rhythms of the town move in these kind of amazing rhythms. Yeah. So anyway, that's a really long answer, but that's what's going, that's like all the kind of stuff I'm thinking of when I'm going out to Yaren to make these things. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And um, that is something where actually it is helpful to have a few cues because when you start putting those pieces together, then it does take on a lot of deeper meaning. I mean, they're kind of like two questions I want to ask here. One is about the third major component of the show, which is this like mega yacht. And the other is about post-net art. And maybe the two can kind of yeah. come together because this Adidas series, actually, it feels somewhat aesthetically or materially in its industrial form and its use of like a big brand logo, it feels like it, it it's consonant with some of the logic of post-net art. Although Dan, I mean, as the resident expert here, I mean, feel free to adjust, you know, fine tune this question. But I am curious, like how your work has been differentiated in your own mind or in that of others from the work that came after post-net, which was inspired very much by like a lot of the stuff you were doing, a lot of the logic that you were teasing out. And so, yeah, maybe some discussion of the super yacht can tie into this answer, or maybe you can save it for after, but yeah. Can you speak to the post-net question? I guess yeah, that's it. <laughs> this is great. And it's, we're getting to that question so many years later. The post-internet yeah, well, question. Maybe now it's <laughs> 10 years now. later, it's, right? It's like the forest is burned and we can just <laughs> yeah, talk about yeah, it. Totally. Years, too. Yeah, I used to avoid it. I used to do everything I yeah. could to avoid that question. Yeah, I remember when it started too, like people would come to my studio to interview me and they would be like, what do you think of post-internet? And then there was another, what was it like the new real? There was another term. The new aesthetic. That, the new aesthetic. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So these two things started flooding into my studio. And by that time, I was already kind of tuned out. Like I was already like, quote unquote, on tour, you know, like when a, a band like starts, then they're tuned in and then they start going on tour and they're just, they're never plugged in again, you know? So by that time I was already kind of like tuned out. Yeah. I mean, like maybe we have to define our terms. Like for me, the post-internet thing was like the shift between kids were starting to graduate from art school that were cool with computers. And that was a huge shift, right? So before that, most art school educated people were like against computers or didn't like digital art or whatever. I mean, it reminds me how people think of, well, is it street? Street art was a parallel in a way, but now it's, that's a whole different thing, but right. Like people in the art, art sure, industry yeah. don't like street art, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a parallel, although street art ended up being so successful, but... Um, more uh, so than, yeah, than post-internet. Yeah, yeah. More so than contemporary art. You yes. can even yeah, argue. Absolutely, absolutely, for sure. <laughs> it's just yeah, like, yeah. it just like blew right by. But then, yeah, so then all of a sudden there was a generation of kids who were used to using computers and then started making the work and like kind of like people in who were running things were forced to kind of reckon with it, you know, because it really is the artist that lead the charge in a way, you know? And so the post-internet thing was this kind of, yeah, I don't know. Like when it showed up, I was kind of relieved to be honest. Like I was kind of like, thank God I couldn't have waited another year, you know, <laughs> because it was, you know, all that work I was interested in. And I kind of like, it was a huge relief to me, you know? 
So I identified with all that stuff and, and followed it, you know, and I think I was never quite really like associated with it because I was a little bit too old already. But I think the differentiation for me was always, it, it was the, also like one of the first times that I realized that I was a different generation where I did come from that media art generation where I was like, yeah, I got a code and I got to do, you know, like, even though I was pushing it farther than the generation before me doing, getting away with things that they would have considered not cool. You know, like I was pushing it and then the post-internet generation was like coding. Why would we even code? Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> so that was, that was, I started, I was like, oh yeah, I am of a generation. And I don't know if I could, I think like, I have these boundaries that I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to get out of. Like I, I am locked in a way. So that, that was the kind of, I think my, the way I differentiated and I saw younger artists do things that I kind of wished I could have, would have the nerve to do, but it was like even too much for me, you know, well, I'll just right. take a picture of a computer, like things like that, where I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wish I would have done that, you know? Yeah. Well, I think you, I always think of you as just sort of the most successful net artist, which of course paved the way for that. And I would, I mean, when I think of your practice now, it's indistinguishable from a post-internet practice. It's what it is. It's in the wake of the internet. It's yeah. responding to that culture. It, you know, the Kim Kardashian game feels very much like the same <laughs> logic of a post-internet art. Yeah, so yeah, it, it yeah. converged, but yeah, I mean, you led the way for it to be possible is how I always saw it. So, yeah, and your work, thanks. I always <laughs> think, is the link. You, I always consider the link between Paper Ad and Dis Magazine. Sure. Yeah. That you guys definitely. Were, really, were really like, for me, my timeline goes Jody, Paper Ad, you guys, Dis. That's like, I my think that end. makes sense, sort of, for I sure. Think AIDS and, 3D with cotton. Yeah. It's an AIDS 3D for us, for yeah. those people listening. And yeah, and it's really like you could see Jody in Paper Ad. You could see pa Paper Ad in AIDS 3D and you could see AIDS 3D yeah. in Dis. And so there's this incredible, lovely lineage. And for me, like I am following along all that stuff. And like for each of those entities, I was like, yes, 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 yeah, yeah. yes you know. And what do you think that that, like the DNA has gone where? What in your scope, Dan, questions also for you. I mean, Julian also, mm -hmm. like, what do you think now is the further generation of that? Would you see popping up? Is it in uh, like... Romelia is the closest thing Romelia. that I can think of. Okay, yeah. yeah I, mean, I would I don't, so question. as well. Wait, is that me in. a direct um, lineage? I don't know. Romelia is the collective that made the Milady NFT collection. Yes, and, I was going to uh, say that. I was, so, but they're Zoomers and edgy and they have taken the mantle of pushing digital culture forward in some way, for sure. I think that seems like the closest equivalent, but and I think the biggest difference is they're much more anonymous and also definitely back towards being more directly technical again. That seems yeah. to be, you know, a big pendulum swing back for sure. All right. So we have, and then there's a, there's a 10 year difference between what was in between this and that. What was that? What dark, was the dark ages. Yeah, COVID, yeah. exactly. Trump era brain worms. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because when I first met Joan and Dirk from Jody, I mean, that was like 2000, 2001, and they were anonymous. They were living in Barcelona then, and I thought they were going to invite me to like a warehouse that was like had burning cars and, you know, like, <laughs> like I really thought I was going into some kind of hacker haven because people didn't even know they were artists or like it was so unclear what they were, you know? Yeah. Well, they played so, that up. That's for sure. That's they the, played that up. Yeah. Definitely. 
Yeah. So it's interesting that that is kind of back, but actually that's another thing to talk, like a lot of things that I saw in the early 2000s, like data viz, a lot of the MIT stuff, a lot of that stuff is really back in different ways. So it's funny to see these cycles, you know, that relates to your question. Well, it kind of just preempts my question. I mean, I, I had written as above, so below, we've left the weird tens and have entered the Gnostic twenties and in this spirit, I'd like to hear if there are any patterns or cycles you've noticed repeating in the way either society relates to new technologies or cycles in the technology itself. I mean, you just mentioned some, but I don't know if there's any other pendulum swings that have also been really apparent to you. I mean, like, isn't Discord just like chat room? So like, I don't know, like, <laughs> like, I feel like, or like, or bulletin board systems, like haven't, is like, I wonder like how different these I mean, of course, I understand how different they are because even the littlest change can mean everything in a culture, you know, but I do wonder as this kind of Twitter era is falling apart, like, it's interesting that there is some movement to go back to things like chat rooms or, and then with the art, yeah, it's like, I see a lot of this data viz stuff and a lot of this NFT stuff. It reminds me a lot of stuff that I saw 20 years ago, but in a kind of new form. So it's nice in that I think that stuff was maybe underappreciated then. And so it's cool. It's kind of having its moment. And I don't know. It's it's wild. What do you all see? It's a spiral. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> downward spiral. I mean, if we're going to talk about like internet platforms, I think it's just like, you know, there's a pendulum swinging between mm-hmm. bundling and unbundling of yeah. services or communities. And we're kind of in an unbundling cycle, but that's just going to shift back. And it seems like I don't think either of those options is going to win. It will be a perpetual (laughs) war between different types of monolithic entities like Twitter and things Mm -hmm. like, you know, dark force. And there's there's obvious advantages and disadvantages to both. Mm -hmm. So for me, I spend a lot of time on arena and arena is the one, one thing Mm -hmm. that I really, really like. I think that is a place that has a really good vibe or like some kind of, that is a good example because technically it's Pinterest, but it's Pinterest with like a specific community attached to it. Mm-hmm. And that does seem to be like the model for a lot of things is like a mm-hmm. familiar interface and then it vibes. That's the winning formula. Do you think we'll ever go back to having some kind of fire hose dynamic though? I mean, I, as someone born in, as an ex um, <laughs> I both really understand that legacy media is over and that's fine. And we need to just like accept what comes next and be curious about it. At the same time, I do mourn a little bit the dynamic that that fire hose of legacy media, like top-down unidirectional media created, the tension it created, the power it created. And if you found a way to hack it, the potential Mm -hmm. hacking into that power allowed. What's your feeling about that? Like, do you desire some future iteration of a fire hose type dynamic, maybe in addition to more decentralized forms? Do you see anything like that emerging? Or do you think that's just like an exennial mindset that needs to be like left in the 20th century? <laughs> oh man, that's a crazy question. Uh, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about Van Halen. You know, Van Halen is, is my first memory of television, seeing their videos jump in Panama in 1984. So I would have been six. And so I go on YouTube a lot and I watch those videos and Van Halen concerts from 84. And I kind of relive that firehose moment when I was six, right? And it was seeing those videos 
I don't know if you've ever seen those Van Halen videos, Jump in Panama. Those were like the famous videos from their their record. Have any of you ever seen those? I didn't those? have MTV as a kid. I, I oh, really yeah. So Jesus. I missed that. I haven't seen them in why 25 so years. <laughs> They're really, really beautiful. And for me, I think I got my love of TV from them. And I got my love of media from those videos and my love of music. Or not I got or like it awoken. Right. And also Eddie Van Halen, you know, he's always smiling and he's looking at the camera. And I just, even when I watch them now, I think, oh, it's, it's okay. It's good to be alive. Like this is the possibilities of art. And so, so your question is, would that have been possible? I, so yeah, I guess I have the same mindset as you. It would be nice to go back to that and be six again and to be firehosed <laughs> Van Halen, you know, and to have your, my life change again. But I don't know. I don't think it's going to happen. I, although I'm, I'm, I'm the worst to predict. I mean, if I would have been a predict technology, I would have been a millionaire, you know. I would have jumped on all those startups that I had a chance to in the aughts in New York. You know what I mean? <laughs> totally. I remember one guy from Vimeo was like in a bar and he's like, yeah, video in the browser. And I was like, no <laughs> way. It was a guy, this guy, he was at college, college humor at the time. He ended up being one of the Vimeo guys. Wow. <laughs> That's wow. how stupid I was. Video in the browser. <laughs> what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> no way. Yeah. So I think it is fair to say we did have a, it, like, it was possible to have really transformative experiences, even with that fire hose. Uh, yeah. but, and, you know, now it's, of course, these algorithms and I struggle with it and, you know, try to get an angle on it. I, I wish we had like algorithm control panels. Like why can't like, totally. why can't I yeah. have like knobs, like a synth and to pump up a little, you know, turn yes. down the Rogan a little bit, turn up. It's the, coming. Yeah. Okay. It's coming. She's I mean, I think it, it, there's enough yeah. people who, who want that to happen. I've heard that request many times in the last year, for sure. Tunable, yeah. And then you could have algorithms yeah, for you sure. You could have like algorithm patches be like, try this patch. This thing is amazing. You know what I mean? It could be absolutely. Like, we'll see. But um, I love it. I love it. I that, I want that future for sure. Yeah. Tuning in, having that meaning. Yes. But yeah, cool. I don't know. I feel like <laughs> anybody, anything. <laughs> I could ask what about you? the hacker mindset. I was just going to talk about the okay. hacker mindset. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was I was so gonna... I, I wanted to ask you how how you define the hacker mindset or maybe the hacker ethos, and it's pretty apparent that that hacker ethos or mindset has crept outward from the internet to broader society. And I guess, does it feel like 25 years later to borrow a phrase from the 1995 film hackers, does it feel like people have indeed hacked the planet? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, yeah. I mean, I always like my initiation to hacking was in college and it was it was like to play pranks, to do clever things on computers. And it was really to play pranks. So that was my in to the hacker game and contemporary art. Prank playing can be a part of it. And especially what I do is is very heavy on the prank playing. Like what you saw at the Kunstverein, these horizontal Instagram feeds. I mean, that's really a straight gag, really. Um, and it's just about trying to pull it over and, you know, just get the benches, get the size, do it at the Kunstverein and just see if you could like make it work. And yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this, but for like the planet, yeah, it's such a drag. I mean, I feel like what did it lead to? It led to like Uber. I don't, you know what I mean? Like, 
like it just it somehow got combined with this like Jack Welshian like squeeze it squeeze every last drop out of the rag productivity like somehow Silicon Valley just hacking it, became life hacking that is a very different it's not prank it's about productivity boost productivity yeah, yeah exactly that's a big difference and and like I don't know when that happened and so to me yeah when I think of that trajectory it's just it's just a drag really you know like this freelance economy this it, it's it, yeah I, I get a big sigh actually i mean even though your work often is like kind of built around a, a prank or like one weird trick it always has like an after hit that like is always a bit whoa or kind of spins you i mean even with the horizontal bots performance performance yeah <laughs> i mean it, it was weird sometimes i'd be watching some like absolutely inane amazon ad but the bot would like and move past it before it's finished and i felt <laughs> yeah. myself being like oh but what happened like, oh, like, <laughs> yeah. and i'm just like fuck like that like the fact that i couldn't see the end of this amazon ad like actually like and then i started thinking about like what what yeah. the fuck are these things doing to my brain the yeah. fact yeah. that i'm like it's like a prank that like unlocks some sort of micro existential crisis and i think that's what <laughs> yeah. is really special about uh, yeah. your work Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I, I don't know if I could add anything to that. That is the goal, really. This has been super fun chatting with you, Corey. Yeah, it's so great to finally connect. I, I know yeah, we've totally. been trying to connect for years. <laughs> Literally. Yeah, I know. Yep. Yep. And I want to come um, and visit you all in Berlin, actually. Yeah, um, you got to totally. So Nick is back on screen, cool. but Corey, if there's anything coming up for you personally or your related communities in the coming months that you want to shout out or that we should, yeah, just be aware of. Well, I'll plug, you got like two days left or three days left to go see this show in Hamburg, yeah. right, Nick? How long do they got left? Until Sunday. Until you got, until Sunday to see this show. It's a good one. I'm, I'm, I think we were, I was proud of it. Uh, and you, as you heard, I figured out finally how to show these Instagram bot works after several years of trial and error. And yeah, maybe I'll plug the thing I did on Saturday. I got a book that I just released with Stina Janvin on primary information. We released it in the fall. We did the premiere performance of it last Saturday at Issue Project Room, but that book's available. It's a book of scores based on traditional Norwegian knitting patterns and traditional Norwegian just intonated tuning. Whoa, cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's where my head is at. And I'm going to be making a lot of these things in the next few months. So look for those in the next year. A lot of laser cut aluminum. We're going to do anodized aluminum next, which oh, is what, yeah. what your computer is made out of. And so <laughs> that's, and I, yeah, I have a whole box of these fabrics. I'm, and so we're going to, we're going to do Adidas, but we're going to do other things Whoa. as well. So that's what's Are happening. Any, on, uh, splash anodizing, any trick anodizing or just, no, it's just gold. like straight. Yeah. <laughs> straight I wanted to color. look just, we're doing the apple gold first, like okay. we're doing nice. apple gold and yeah, we'll see how that, <laughs> we'll see how that goes, but they're cool. Actually, they have no hanging hardware either. There's just, I did it. So the screws fit flush, just like a laptop. So you just screw them right into the wall. Oh, nice. And then also I could like, put like 30 of them in like one crate, which is the other cool thing. Yeah. Like Ikea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Contemporary art market hacking. So no, that's what's happening. Thank you though. What about you all? You should plug something. What's going on in your world? Well, 
We're going to Dubai in the beginning of March to speak as part of Shuman Basar's organized Art Dubai. I think we'll be speaking more about the collapse of legacy media, but more of what <laughs> happens next. This is like the obsession yeah. of like thinking about like mm -hmm. what then is the next era of media. So that mm -hmm. was a, I had a vested interest in that question. Um, but yeah, that's like the next thing on the horizon, I think. And Dan, what about also channel related or I don't know if there's uh, anything that you want to plug yet There's or some, it's still sort of nothing to plug yet but there will be some news coming soon for channel it's it's cool. not dead is the only news that i can i can share okay <laughs> cool all right then i guess it's uh my turn i will plug not exactly legacy media but let's say legacy institutions since kunstran is 200 years old now and you know taking a leaf out of your book as podcasters you know, we're kind of the original Patreon. <laughs> so, Ooh, wow, flex. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> so I'm posting in the chat a link to the Mickweed Shaft, the membership uh, with Kunstverein, of course. We're a membership organization, 50 euros a year. means free entry into not only this Kunstverein, but every Verein in Germany and concession is 35. So it's a very good deal. And what do you guys usually say when you're doing this kind of plug? I mean, I always listen to these. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta do it like a podcast. You just gotta lean into it as hard as you can. Yeah. All right. No well, here we are. Yeah. You gotta just like. Yeah. No shame. Click yeah, like, no shame. subscribe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Smash, click like, smash, smash, subscribe. Yeah, exactly. And you, and you, and you gotta hold a piece of paper and read like you're reading it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Come see this Cory Archangel show before Sunday yeah, totally. when it's closing. Get your membership. Come yeah. back. <laughs> um, our next exhibition on that note is uh, Educational Web uh, opening on the 31st of March. So we hope to see you there with your membership card. And thank you again, New Models. Thank you, Corey. It's been super. And yeah. Thank you, Corey. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, everybody. Bye, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Bye, everyone. Everybody. Ciao. Cheers. Thank you, Corey Archangel, for joining us, Nicholas Tammons and the Kunstverein Hamburg for inviting us, and you, our listeners, for experiencing the new model's audio metaverse. A shout out to everyone who came to Trust on Wednesday for our first collaborative film night. We laughed and smiled and felt butterflies in our bellies as we shared a whimsical romp through anime hell watching Project Ito's genocidal organ. If you missed it, there will be another film night next month, this time with more chairs. Next up on the podcast is Lauren Boyle from Dis, but you can check out Carly's review of Dis's recent opening at the Schinkel Pavilion in Interview Magazine right now. Warning, you are now leaving the New Models Audio Metaverse. See you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Music and mixing by Lil Internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com